Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's Library in Ashland, Ohio. I want to welcome you to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about one of the most important political figures of the 20th century, Ronald Reagan. Uh, obviously, we know Ronald Reagan as president. We don't always think of Ronald Reagan himself as a person who reflected deeply on the meaning of the American idea, particularly on how to revive what he understood to be the American idea in the 20th century. Joining me for the conversation today about Ronald Reagan and his understanding of the American idea are two old friends of the Ashbrook Center, Professor John Mosier. Uh, he is professor of history at Ashland University. He is the chair of the Department of History and Political Science at Ashland and also academic chair of our Master of Arts in American History and Government program at the Ashbrook Center, widely published author, a real expert on the history of the 20th century, American liberalism and American conservatism. John, thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be here, Jeff. Our, our other guest today is, uh, as I said, another old friend of the center, Professor Greg McBrayer. Greg is Associate Professor of Political Science at Ashland University. He is Ashbrook's Director of Citizen Programs and himself a scholar of political thought, of the U.S. Constitution, and more broadly of political leadership. He's published in a, a, several books and a number of articles on ancient political thought and on the interesting parallels between ancient leadership and modern leadership. Greg, thanks also for joining me. Thanks for that kind introduction, Jeff. <laughs> let's, let's talk about these documents. Uh, everybody's heard of Ronald Reagan. Some people have heard of the Time for Choosing speech. Many people have probably heard lines or remember famous lines from the Brandenburg Gate speech. But these documents themselves, these two together, why are they important? John, help us understand that. Well, certainly the Time for Choosing speech is critically important because it's really what launched Reagan's political career. Uh, the Brandenburg Address is is maybe the highlight of of his of his uh, uh, of his presidential rhetoric. Uh huh. Um, but to to focus first on the Time for Choosing Address. It's worth remembering that before he was president, long before anybody he was was talking about him as a political figure, he was uh, he was an actor, and uh, and, and you know a B actor. He wasn't he, he wouldn't have been up there with say John Wayne, but but he did his share of films. He was he was a nationally known figure, and he went on television occasionally to do as, as a talking head. Uh, did a series for General Elect that was paid for by General Electric. And, and this was part of a series called Rendezvous with Destiny, a line that comes, of course, from, uh, from Franklin Roosevelt's uh, uh, was it second first inaugural address. All right. And um, it, rhetorically, it's not a brilliant speech. Uh, it's, a lot of the tropes he mentions are, would have been standard for the Republican right at the time. Of course, unlike the Brandenburg Gate address, uh, he wrote, Ronald Reagan actually wrote this one. Ah, okay, um, okay. But it's important to remember the context. It's it's it's, it's 1964, right, is that right? right? It's late in the 1964 presidential campaign. The Republican nominee is Barry Goldwater, the darling of the Republican right. Uh, conservatives adored him. Um, but the handwriting was on the wall that he was not going to win the election of 1964. Uh -huh. Every poll showed right. Lyndon Johnson being reelected by a wide margin. And um, so he gives this address and he becomes an instant celebrity in conservative circles. Uh, I, I, I once had the pleasure of reading the, the diaries of uh, Congressman John Ashbrook of Ohio, and he know, he was one of the first to take notice of this. This is the guy who should have been our candidate. Ah, there, there was okay. a lot you could say great about uh, about Barry Goldwater, um, 
but he was not the communicator that Reagan was, and he wasn't the celebrity that Reagan was. So here you had Ronald Reagan, a, a, a national celebrity with a fantastic speaking voice, terrific delivery, saying the things that in the past had come out of Barry Goldwater's mouths or out of other members you know, of the, the conservative wing of the Republican Party. Uh, suddenly there was a hero at a time when things looked bleak for the campaign. And of course, on election day, it was just as bad as expected for uh, for Goldwater. Here was somebody that the conservative wing of the party could look to and say, "This is the guy we have to be. We we, we need to be running." So here's a potential future star, yes. and and the importance of that speech for Reagan, and of course, and it's it's a a, a strong articulation of the conservative understanding of the American idea in 1964. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and this, it's important to remember that the Republican Party was not nearly as homogeneous politically then as it is Oh, that's today. a good point. Uh, Goldwater's nomination was highly contentious. There was a whole wing of the Republican Party that said, I'm not going to vote for this guy. Uh, we're going to stay home or maybe even vote for Lyndon Johnson. Um, and, and, and and after Goldwater's defeat, this wing of the party said, "See, this is what happens when you nominate an ideologue. This is some. This this represents the far right of the party. It's not the he's not mainstream. Um, you know, they were thinking Richard Nixon is far more like he he he's he's right in the center of the Republican Party at the time. Reg, uh, uh, Goldwater and and Reagan seem to seem to represent the uh, uh, the right. In the short term, it really looked as though uh, the conservative wing of the disc- of the party was discredited, but it came back pretty quickly. Yeah. Greg, what about the importance of the, the Brandenburg Gate address? Sure. Can I, can I just, I want to speak to this 1964 speech for just a moment. Sure. Because um, I think there are two things that John mentioned that are worth sort of expanding on briefly, at least. One is that this is sort of Reagan's, this launches his political career. And so we can look back in retrospect and say that this was an enormous opportunity for Reagan. Like the, the campaign's failing. Uh, there's an opportunity for somebody to step in and maybe t- point to himself for the future. On one hand, on the other hand, you could look at it as I mean, this is extraordinarily risky. Here he is hitching his wagon to what's going to be, by all accounts, and ultimately is a failed campaign. And so it takes a kind of I don't know foresight or some kind of courage to be to think to yourself, this is my hmm. this is how I'm going to launch yeah. my political career yeah. here. So he does it, and the speech is good. I, I've, I've read it before, uh, but in preparation for today, I watched it as well. I encourage our, our listeners to watch the speech. You can find it on YouTube. The Reagan Library has it up for you. Um, and one thing I noticed, and, and John mentioned that this isn't particularly rhetorically powerful, and, and I agree to that. I agree with that to a certain extent. I've been teaching a course on American political rhetoric in our MAG program, mm-hmm. and one of the things that's kind of interesting is that Reagan is, you know, we call him the great communicator, and he really was a masterful rhetorician, but his rhetoric, I mean, he, he wasn't particularly impressive insofar as he employed common rhetorical devices that one would use. He does do that occasionally. In the Brandenburg Gate, there's, in the Brandenburg Gate speech, there's some examples of sort of parallel structures and these kinds of things. In this speech, there's a lot of rhetorical questions. It sort of seems like too many rhetorical questions, in fact. His, as John sort of noted, his rhetorical effectiveness seems to have come from his delivery and his cadence and his way. I mean, we... I, you know, I read this speech at Time for Choosing, and I thought, that's pretty good. And I watched it, and I thought, man, that's really good. Ah, um, okay. Uh, he, okay. He's, I mean, he connects with audiences. Um, there were some jokes in the Time for Choosing that I read that I sort of thought, well, I don't quite get that joke. I don't know who that is. I'll have to look it up. But I watched it, and, you know, the audience is dying at some of these references. So yeah. he knew his audience, and, and it's, it's even the Brandenburg gay speech, which is so good, isn't particularly rhetorically, it doesn't employ a lot of devices. And so its power, I think, comes from its moral authority, as well as his manner of speaking and his cadence, I, that's that's what I think. He does he does seem to have been an entrepreneur in what's now all too common in political speeches of of sort of using examples to prove a larger political point. Uh, uh, he does. I mean, the f- most famous one that he does is uh, what's the guy's name in the first inaugural? Um, uh, Treptow, Martin oh, Treptow, oh, the World War One soldier. Yes. Right. So, but he does that here in the time for choosing case. Right. He talks about the farmer. Um, he talks about the woman who's been divorced who wants to get, the one who wants to get divorced so that she can get better social safety net benefits, right? So he's very specific with examples. And I think that that connects with an audience. Aristotle talks about how effective examples are. You know, he would sort of point to people and, and this has now become sort of standardized. Right, it seems right, to me. right. So that's just a couple of points there. I mean, I, I think it shows early on uh, that he was a good speaker, even though it was not a particularly, 
I think you're right, not a great speech. But it also shows his courage. And I think you are, you also start to see, and I think this is uh, something I hope we talk a little bit about, the seeds of his political thought. Sort of the, the I think there is an ideology or a political theory that's undergirding a lot of what's going on. And I think this speaks to the courageous part as well. He's trying to carve out, Reagan is, along the lines of what Goldwater was trying to do, a, a sort of conservative, or maybe even a, something more than conservative, a return to a certain way of thought. And that's, that takes a certain amount of courage in 1964 when, by all accounts, uh, what went by the name of liberalism at the time was very much on the ascent, right? It was really almost the high-water mark of liberalism, 1964, 65, 66. I mean... And it seems like that's just the wave of the future. Absolutely, it does. And so you have, in, in both these speeches, in 64 and, and then again much later in the Brandenburg Address in, in 87, you have, in, I guess I might think of it this way based on what you're both saying... You have Ronald Reagan articulating a certain understanding of America and what it means in domestic policy in 1964 and what it means in foreign policy in 1987. And you see him sort of have worked out this thinking over the course of the time when he just starts, as John said, in his political career or his public political career and then when he's actually at the height of his political career as president. Yeah, so for me, what's really interesting is, and just seeing the sort of movement of liberalism in the the earlier part of the 20th century, I think part of his political project, part of his political theory is a reviving of the the sort of language even that the founding fathers used in speaking about politics, which I think had become kind of quaint and even old-fashioned speaking about inalienable rights, right? Like Reagan's talking, taking these things very seriously. Yeah. Right, he speaks uh, continuously in this speech in a praiseworthy manner of the founding fathers, those people who did these things, Alexander Hamilton, for example, right? And and one of the first things, just to domestic policy, the thing that links his domestic policy and his foreign policy, I think, is he seems to have been a strong believer in freedom. Uh, you know, if, if, if we if we agree with Tocqueville that America sort of is a regime devoted to equality and f- liberty or freedom, Reagan definitely emphasized freedom here. And, and we see this clearly in the case of free markets, um, right, people being able to engage in commerce freely and showing us how if people aren't freely able to, to engage in economic activity, this is sort of, it leads to worse lives. People flourish when government gets out of the way and lets people do things. He gives the example of the farmer who's, uh, you know, they, what are they, they shut down his farm in Arkansas, right, because, because he grew too many crops or something like this, which, you know, that seems silly. And the woman example, right, like here, you've set up the, the social safety net such that you now have an inducement not to be married. I mean, you're, you're creating incentives that, that would otherwise not be there in a free market. And so, I mean, and the same thing is true, of course, in the realm of foreign policy. I don't know if you want to turn to the Brandenburg Gate speech, but it's very clear that he saw domestically and internationally that, that the key to human flourishing, the key to living well as individuals, as individuals in a community and communities relative to one another was freedom, really. And that hmm. the great evil he saw in, in the Soviet Union and in, in the communist empire was just a stifling of the human spirit in a number of different ways. Let me, let me, let, let me t- let's go then right into A Time for Choosing, that yeah, speech. Please. And take that idea of Ronald Reagan is here, maybe for the first time publicly, clearly articulating what I'll call, based on what you said, Greg, his philosophy of freedom. Right. John, where would be some, in the speech, where would be some places where we would say, here's Ronald Reagan applying that philosophy of freedom? Certainly his frequent references to uh, references to the founding fathers, this is the kind of country that, 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 uh, that he, this is the kind of country that they had in mind, or where where we are now is not what the founding fathers had in mind. Can I just even read a couple of yeah, just sure. brief lines on that? He says at one point, they also knew, those founding fathers, that outside of its legitimate functions, government does nothing as well or as economically as the private sector of the economy. So there, there is an example of him saying, going back to the founding fathers and say, they thought of America as a place where f- people would be free to govern themselves and to flourish. In 1964, do we still believe in that? What's his, what's, he has very strong criticism, remarkably strong actually. He's not trying to make nice with what he sees as the left 
this mo- movement in America. He's not trying to... It, there's no detente here. No. <laughs> As some Republicans might have said, let's just try and, you know, moderate things. Let's not push back so hard. Yeah. He pushes back very hard uh, on the left here in this speech. Yes, absolutely. And this was really the whole theme of the of the Goldwater campaign, which was why it was such a it was so uh, it was such a contentious campaign even on the Republican side. Uh, the 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 term that was used by conservative Republicans toward those who were more moderate were Me Too Republicans. This is, okay, so a Democrat says, I, I want a new program to cover this. And then the Me Too Republican says, yeah, Me Too. It's just, I don't want to spend quite as much on it. I see. Uh, so, there, so, so and this would have been the, the Nelson Rockefeller wing of the party, for instance. Uh, and, and people like Goldwater and Reagan had been complaining about this. Reagan less publicly before this, uh, before this speech, but it was clear that he had these views. Also pay attention to the fact that Reagan says in this, I was a Democrat. Right. I think I he spent, starts the speech that way. Exactly. All my, my entire life I had been a Democrat. And this is something, by the way, he would say repeatedly throughout his political career, that he, was, that he admired Franklin Roosevelt. Uh-huh. But that that wasn't the party. The party of the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s was not the party of, of, of Franklin Roosevelt anymore. What's his criticism... I just throw this out to both of you. What's his criticism of that Democratic Party of the 1960s? Here's where I, I see his the political thought and foreign policy and domestic policy coming together. It's really sort of interesting. He seems to be implying, I mean, there's sort of twin things going on in the Democratic Party. On the one hand, independently of whatever's happening out in the world, the Democratic Party seems to be abandoning the belief in his view of the Founding Fathers' account of freedom, especially. This is amplified or accelerated by the left's view that that's where the world is headed in the future. That they that many of prominent Democrats at this time are saying, well, you know what? Maybe the best path forward for peace is some kind of a reconciliation with the with communism, which means maybe that means we have to look a little more like democratic socialism. And so this this idea of the future, this is what he's thoroughly rejecting. So this this weird feedback loop where some Democrats are already advocating for um, measures that are more in line with what I think Reagan would call socialism because they think it's good policy. But on the other hand, they also are pursuing it because they think that it will lead to a less confrontational posture with respect to this other global superpower. I have a paragraph in mind where he sort of amplifies this. He really takes issue with LBJ's Great Society, if, if it's okay to read for just a yeah, moment. Yeah, please. I'd like to hear it. Okay, so here he's, quote, here he's talking about L. Lyndon Baines Johnson. He says, In this vote harvesting time, they use terms like the Great Society, or as we were told a few days ago by the president, we must accept a greater government activity in the affairs of the people. But they have been a little more explicit in the past and among themselves, and all of the things that I now will quote have appeared in print. These are not Republican accusations. So here he's quoting other Democrats. For example, they have voices that say, quote, the Cold War will end through acceptance of a not undemocratic socialism, end quote. That's really one of the things I had in mind, right? there. Mm. They see their domestic policy seems to be confirmed by their view of what's happening in, in the in the world writ large. Uh, Reagan continues, they think the profit motive is outmoded. Uh, It must be replaced by the welfare state and incentives there too. Uh, Traditional system of individual freedom is not capable of solving the complex problems of the 20th century. We hear that now in the 21st century, that these these old moded ideas of inalienable rights uh, and self-evident truth are somehow become outmoded. And he's sort of trying to go back to the very founding fathers on, on behalf of freedom and the freedom of you and me. Um, so yeah, I, I do see these things dovetailing quite nicely. One of the things that really strikes me about this same paragraph is he says, I for one resent, resent it when a representative of the people refers to you and me, the free man and woman of this country as the masses. Yeah. And there he's quoting mm-hmm. uh, Senator Clark. Clark, yeah. Clark of Pennsylvania. Right, right. Mm. So we're individuals, we're not masses mm-hmm. and we have freedom. We, yeah, very good. Yeah. So we get this articulation here of saying, we need to go back to the founding, we need to recover this American idea, the central point of which is freedom. Applied in domestic affairs means we reject the movement toward the great society of Lyndon Johnson. Right. We might accept FDR and the New Deal, but we don't accept Lyndon Johnson and the great society. That's a bridge too far. And we explicitly reject socialism. Right which is being advocated for in some, in some quarters. So. Is it because even now there were certainly New Dealers, uh, certainly, sorry, people, who, advocates of the Great Society 
who thought this was a step toward democratic socialism and therefore they supported it. Right. There were a lot of other rank-and-file Democrats, for example, in Congress, who did not think that. They thought it was really just a continuation of the New Deal. They were not alarmed by this. That's, I, I would say that's the case with Lyndon Johnson himself. I mean, Lyndon Johnson was not an advocate of socialism right. by any means. Right. So, but Reagan thinks this expansion from the New Deal to the Great Society really crosses a line that turns us away from the American founding. Help us understand a little more fully based on this speech, what line is it that's crossed? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's entirely clear from the speech itself. I mean, you could you could point at most of the programs that he's criticizing here. Right. And see where they came from. They came from the New Deal. They were just bigger by by this time. One might add that associated with the Great Society is far more the concept of the dole. There was some of that under the New Deal, but Roosevelt himself had always said he doesn't want or he doesn't want. It's one thing if it's during a time of specific economic crisis that you've got to help help people get through this through this time. Right. But he was he was adamant that that there be no long term dole for healthy you know ordinary people, old the elderly, widows and orphans. Of of, of course, they're there to be supported. That's that's the Rooseveltian welfare state. But there's something about the Johnson welfare state. A, it looks, uh, by now, it, it sure looks permanent. And you can't say it's to get us through this period of economic crisis because the economy in, the, uh, in 1964 was, was booming. Um, and, and, and it was, there were plenty of able-bodied men who were, who were receiving support during this period as well. Ah, okay. And it, it strikes me, too, that there's a turn in, that Reagan sees in the great society a turning away from the founding in the sense, and I'm thinking here of a, of a sentence from the speech, he says, this is the issue of this election. He's talking about, do we believe in the sovereignty of the people and their ability to govern themselves? He says, this is the issue of the election. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we abandon the American Revolution and confess that a little intellectual elite in a far distant capital can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them our, ourselves. And that's a classic example of an argument that you would have heard by critics of the New Deal in the 1930s, too. That you've got mm. these fancy lawyers for the uh, the AAA or the NRA who were making these decisions for that, that were going to affect the rest of the, the entire population. So I, 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 I wonder sometimes if Reagan's... Uh, admiration for Roosevelt isn't more like he was the president I remember when I was growing up mm. he led us through World War two and 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 of course his you know his his leadership his presidential leadership during the war was 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 quite praiseworthy um so I am not going to say anything bad about Roosevelt Every, I mean the fact is Roosevelt was loved by the majority the majority of the population the great majority of the population right it doesn't pay politically to to say this is all this all stems from the horrible policies of, of Franklin Roosevelt focus on this guy now because you would have found Democrats who had said yeah this is no longer uh, this is no longer Franklin Roosevelt's party that would get stronger in the right. 19 in the late 1960s and in the 1970s. So you have the phenomenon of the Reagan Democrats turning out in uh, in in 1980. These were people who would have been would have said they were proud to have supported Franklin Roosevelt, but this is no longer Franklin Roosevelt's party. So this speech in 1964, a time for choosing, articulates this philosophy of freedom, puts Reagan on the map. As you said, John, he sort of becomes a star. Um, for among American conservatives who say, man, maybe he should have been our nominee. <laughs> right. And maybe he should be our nominee sometime in the future. Yes. We go from 1964 to 1980. Ronald Reagan becomes governor of California mm -hmm. uh, in 1966, right? He Correct. wins the election, mm -hmm. and then he wins another term. So he's a two-term governor of California. He's done by 1974, uh, 1975, I guess, the spring of 75. 
Um, what's Reagan do between 1975 and when he becomes president in 1980, defeating Jimmy Carter in that election? What's Reagan do? Do we see him continuing these same themes that he articulated here in A Time for Choosing, both maybe as governor of California, but also in that sort of inter-period where he's not in political office? Yeah, and, and he's, he really made it kind of a target of, uh, of Gerald Ford. Um, he was, there were, there were plenty of people who were saying, you know, replace him. He didn't actually, he didn't like to mention Ford by name. Reagan liked, liked to say one of his political rules was never speak ill of your fellow Republican. But the, the, the conservatives in the Republican party did not like Gerald Ford at all. they thought, let's, let's get him out there in, in 76. There was talk about running him in the, uh, uh, to having a primary challenge to, uh, uh, to uh, to Ford that didn't materialize, but Reagan's name is in front of in front of people. He is making public statements, not directly critical of Ford, but he's he is making it known that he is out there. Uh, there's there's an episode of All in the Family uh, right around the 1976 election, and uh, and and we're talking about who they voted for, and and. Uh, Archie Bunker just says, "Well, I wrote in Ronald Reagan." <laughs> and of course, that was considered a, that was considered a joke in nineteen in nineteen seventy six. Do you know any students with an interest in American history, politics, economics, and literature? Do they enjoy being academically challenged and the thrill of engaging with different ideas and viewpoints? Hi, I'm Sabrina Maristella, student programs coordinator here at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Academy is a series of summer courses for rising high school juniors and seniors. Held in person at Ashland University, the Academy immerses you in the American story like you've never been before. Since 2015, our approach has taken history out of textbooks and into students' lives with historical documents and conversations about those documents. If you are a rising high school junior or senior, or if you know someone who is, we invite you to learn more about our courses and apply today at ashbrookacademy.org. And, and now I think turning a little bit more, more toward the Brandenburg uh, address, Reagan's criticism of Ford and that wing of the Republican Party is both a criticism of their domestic policy. They're too willing, as you call them, me too, Republicans. Me, me too, I'll go along with that. They're too willing to make nice with Johnson's great society. They just want to be responsible stewards of the great society, not roll it back in many ways. What's his criticism of Republican thinking in foreign policy? Yeah, yeah well, something I found striking about his, uh, his criticism in A Time for Choosing of the Johnson administration's foreign policy is it would seem to apply much better to the foreign policy of Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. Because, in fact, you know, say what you want about Lyndon Johnson, he wanted to stop communism, right? He committed U.S. forces uh, to, uh, to, to the war in Vietnam. 1964, Vietnam was, it was an issue, but it was not nearly what it would be two, three, four years later. So, uh, so yeah, it, it's if you read this speech, you also say, "Wait a minute, when was this?" Oh, it's sixty-four. You can mm. think that was seventy-two, because he is of the his wing of the party is deeply critical of detente, which is a policy that was really associated not so much with Johnson, but with Nixon and with with Nixon and Ford. Help our listeners understand detente. It's a, literally it means a a, a a relaxing of tensions between the great powers. Nixon and Ford, and Ford is sort of following in, in footsteps laid down by Nixon and Henry Kissinger, that said, let's de-ideologize the Cold War. Let's look at this more like two rival superpowers that if one false move and the world's going to go up in nuclear war, so they have to watch their steps, let's just deal with, deal with each other on a practical basis and forget about the ideological difference between them. So parties. let's not talk about America's moral and political principles in contrast to Soviet moral and political principles. Exactly right. We just look at them as, as, a, as a, a, a superpower that we have, like it or not, we have to deal with 
And so all kinds of trade deals are negotiated. Arms control agreements are, ne are, are negotiated during this, uh, uh, during this period. Cultural exchange programs. And the Reagan wing of the Republican Party, you know, we once would have called it the Goldwater ring, wing, but clearly by the 70s, it's the, it's the Reagan wing, was saying, we are surrendering principle yeah. in this. So we really have, in, in many ways, I'm thinking of the, 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 the way that the Republican Party, or more broadly, people were thinking about how to deal with the Soviet Union, Soviet communism. You have detente. Mm -hmm. you have, then you have the old Truman Doctrine of containment, right? So that means where Soviet communism or communism exists, it exists, but we don't, we contain it. We don't allow it to spread any further. And then it seems like you have Reagan come on and say, neither one of those two are enough. Yeah. They're not adequate. And he articulates what becomes, I think, known as the doctrine of rollback. Greg, what's that doctrine? Uh, you know, the speech, what is the speech even called? Speech at Brandenburg Gate? But we call it, if you Google it or you look for it, it's called Tear Down This Wall speech, right? Yeah. So, I mean, like, what better way to encapsulate his, his foreign policy than tear down this wall? Not we're going to have to live with one another, uh, not we have to contain them, but we have to work. Now, prudentially, of course, we're not, we don't want this Cold War to escalate into a hot war, but we would like to see uh, the Soviet Union's power rolled back. We would like to see America rise relative in the world. And I think that even you see some idea that Reagan believed, and this becomes clear later in his second, or maybe even the beginning of his first term, but it seems clear in the second term, that uh, he believes so much in the superiority of freedom as a founding principle for a way of, of life, as a way of government. That he's like, if we do this, if we, if we just let ourselves be free, they, they won't be able to compete with us economically, militarily. I mean, like... Communism crushes the spirit. It crushes innovation. It crushes the soul. There's no way that they're going to be able to have the scientists to do what we want to do. They won't have innovation. People won't be able to capture the the, um, the profits from doing these things. And I think he genuinely thinks that um, we can we can bring this. I mean, he seems to imply he's the only one who believes this. Like we can actually destroy the communist the communist Soviet Union. Yeah. And the, the, the idea of rollback actually had been out there since the late 40s and early 50s. Yeah. Conservative Republicans had been talking about it, but it seemed crazy. Right. Then. What do you want, World War III? Right. And in fact, the Eisenhower administration, the Eisenhower and John Foster Dulles talked about a liberation strategy. Mm -hmm. They always said, look, obviously we don't want to go to war, but we want to suggest that Soviet domination of Eastern Europe and Asia is, is not natural. And right. we look forward to the day when when these people are freed of communist tyranny. Then the uh, 1956, the Hungarian Revolution happens. The Hungarian, the, the, the Hungarian insurgents claim to have been inspired by this idea that, hey, the American, the, the, the U.S. government wants us to be free. Well, no assistance came. <laughs> yeah. Right. They, they, they didn't get help. And of course, that's right. Eisenhower, I don't, I don't want to say that Eisenhower was wrong to do it because, he, you know, again, Eisenhower didn't want to start World War III. But after the Hungarian Revolution, you heard, the administration stopped talking about rollback. They stopped talking about a liberation strategy. And it doesn't come back until Reagan. Mm -hmm. Reagan becomes president, defeating Jimmy Carter in 1980. Yeah. Becomes president in 1981. He seems to take this philosophy seriously. It's a great story. Early in his administration, so he asks, what's your vision, strategic vision for the Cold War? And he says, easy. They lose, we win. <laughs> and, 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 you know, journalists and, and, and liberal intellectuals were apoplectic over this. Yeah. Huh. What a simplistic Can idea. I, yeah. Not only is it simplistic, I mean, like, I... We probably should. I, I grew up in West Berlin. My dad was in the Air Force. Uh, we lived there when Reagan gave this brand What years speech. were you there, Greg? I was there 84 to 88, so we left okay. just before the wall came down. Wow. I remember when Reagan gave this speech. I remember all the increased security and all this stuff. But I mean, like, and obviously a military brat living in Berlin, like I saw Rocky IV in a theater, right? Like, we're, we got to defeat the Soviets. But, like, none of us actually thought it was going to happen. Like, we, we were like, maybe in 20 years or 30, you know, Reagan, we think he's planting the seeds that will eventually, you know, the American military superiority... I mean, it was clear that our culture was was sort of challenging their way of thinking, right? I mean, the ubiquity of blue jeans and Marlboro cigarettes and peanut butter. You know, anyway, but you just didn't. The idea that it could be feasibly done in anything like the time frame that it actually happened. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I was a young kid, so but it just seems like he was alone in thinking that this could happen, was inevitable, and could happen soon. 
the, the, the groundwork for this famous speech is laid by some other speeches that he gives. He right. very famously, I guess, in a speech to the National Association of Evangelicals, against the advice of, uh, of his advisors and, and speechwriters, some of them at least, called the Soviet Union an evil empire. On the other, yeah, so this is, this is why I think he's such a masterful uh, politician and speaker. On the one hand, he's consistently calling them the evil empire and, and doesn't cease to stalk, talk about the tyranny of the Soviet Union. By the way, sidebar, some of his best jokes are jokes about communism in the Soviet Union. Maybe we can do a couple of them outtakes at the end. <laughs> yeah, right? He'd like to talk about a meeting between a U.S. and a Soviet citizen, talking about the differences between their countries. And the U.S. citizen says, well, the big difference is I can stand out in the middle of Times Square and criticize my government. And the Soviet citizen said, what? What is a big deal? I, I have the right to, I can stand out in the Red Scare and also criticize your government. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I, I have a, another one that I, I actually, I, I, I taught Reagan recently and I told this joke. And uh, the, the premise of the joke is that, which is true, I actually did a little research on this and there was a New York Times article on it. There was a 10-year waiting list to buy a car in the Soviet Union at one point, right? The, the average time to buy a car. So the joke that Reagan tells is uh, this one guy and you had to get the approval of your supervisor at work. And so this guy finally gets the super, you know, he's a supervisor signs off on it and he's able to go buy a car. So he goes down to the car dealership and uh, he, he wants to buy a car. And the dealer says, well, you know, there's a 10-year a waiting list. The man finally says, okay, so they're going to buy the car. He says, I'll pay for it now. And he says, well, uh, can I pick the car up in uh, the morning or the afternoon? And the guy says, it's in, it's in 10 years. What's, what difference does it make? And the guy says, well, the plumber's coming in the morning. So, <laughs> so, yeah, right? But, like, but so that's on one hand. On the other hand, he was so friendly to Gorbachev, you know, like personally would go down and, you know, got a coat for him when it was cold. So it was this weird, this must have been disorienting to, to Gorbachev and the Soviets, right? You have this guy calling us evil, and yet he's still friendly, and he, all he wants to talk about is peace and how we can get there, and... He initiates this idea of they're going to have Star Wars and we're, that putting us at a huge military disadvantage. But then he comes around and says, willing to walk it back if you guys do X, Y, and Z. So, I mean, to your main point that Reagan was crystal clear, right? Yeah. There's something morally corrupt at the heart of communism. It's evil. I mean, this is really not beating around the bush at all. This is, you know, you don't yeah, encourage that's politicians right. to that's speak right. like this. That's not detente talk. No, it's not at all. But on the other hand, uh, as, I, as I sort of mentioned a moment ago, it's not the Soviet people. It's not the Russian people, right? Um, he, and he was consistently nice to people, um, even personally. And so there was this weird sort of clarity about the moral superiority of the, of the West to the East, coupled with still treating the East decently. And I think that's what must have been hard to wrap your mind around. And, and this, this shows itself both in his foreign policy, as you were saying. So we maintain the idea of the Cold War is they lose, we win. They're evil, we're good, and the good guys are going to win. He maintains that, yet he is open to dialogue. When he finally gets a partner in Mikhail Gorbachev, he had all these Soviet premiers kept dying on him, right, in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then finally he gets someone, I think in 85, Gorbachev That's right. uh, becomes general secretary. So he has someone now to work with, but he maintains this sort of, Yes, I, I will not deny that principle, and that principle is going to guide our thinking, but it's not going to be the only thing, that, the only way we think about this situation. Right. We want to achieve peace without surrendering the moral principle. This seems to be the difficulty that Reagan faces, John. Yeah, and, and, and it's not as though... Certainly there's a rhetorical mellowing after Gorbachev takes power and it becomes clear that Gorbachev really wants to make reforms. But it's not like Reagan rolls over for Gorbachev either. I mean, at the, the, the Reykjavik summit, he he famously said he famously said, "Look, I'm not going to back down on a strategic defense initiative," um, and and that no result came from this summit. I remember hearing all the criticism of Reagan. Gorbachev had an outstretched hand, and you and he rejected it. He was not going to give in on that principle, but he made it clear that he was open to further discussion, and of course, further discussion happened. So that by nineteen by uh, 1986, 1987. As preparations were being made for this uh, for this speech at the Brandenburg Gate, um, there are already a number of hopeful developments in in U.S. Soviet relations. 
the start talks, for instance, were, were, were well underway. Treaty was being treaty was being drawn for reduction of nuclear weapons. Yes, uh, uh, in 1986, air travel between the United States and the Soviet Union was restored. It had been suspended in 1978. Uh huh. So it it, it it did look like, in a way, a kind of a kind of détente was back, mm-hmm. um, which which made which perhaps made what Reagan said at Brandenburg Gate a, 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 a bit of a surprise. Yeah. Right? Because now he's he is interjecting the principle back into it. Can you imagine being Gorbachev? I mean, here you are, you've, you've... Reagan's finally met someone he can have dialogue with, he can try to make some progress with. Gorbachev probably has people that he's trying to pacify back home. And he's like, look, I'm talking with Reagan, we're trying to... We're going to reduce nuclear missiles, these kinds of things. And then Reagan gets up and says... General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate, Mr. Gorbachev. Open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Right? He repeats his name. Through, like, you. This is yeah. a, your, your responsibility, Mr. Gorbachev. So it's, it's, it's interesting that even while he's doing all this stuff, he right here at this speech, he still puts him right back in the hot seat. And I've talked with Peter Robinson, right. who is, of course, the speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, who um, who wrote those lines? Right. And of course, many many of our listeners may know the story, but that the uh, officials in the State Department and other places desperately wanted those lines that you just read, Greg. Right. Desperately wanted them cut. Right. They seemed too personal, too much of a call to Gorbachev to actually have to do something. Too much, as you said, John, of reinjecting the moral principle that the Soviet communism must stop being tyrannical uh, it back into this discussion it seemed like it was going to ruin the thaw that had been happening exactly. you know i i don't think he would have maybe he would have said that line tear down this wall but but not in that kind of context had brezhnev or andropov or chernenko been in charge right he's saying this because he sees that gorbachev right. is a different kind of leader he sees that he, he suspects that gorbachev could be open to doing this and he's 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 not so much calling him out as well i guess a call out is a challenge you know in a yeah. way he's challenging him to to live up to his to his own promises right, right? You, you can if you that, seek but, prosperity yeah. if you really seek peace like I you're see. saying so he's yeah. not denouncing then, him he's yeah. challenging him yeah. yeah like like why say it if brezhnev's in office Bre- everyone knows what brezhnev stands for he's not going to change anything but you've got somebody in control in the soviet union now who is saying a lot of the right things the question is is he will and and even well even reagan mentions this he says Political prisoners are being are, are being released. There's a little bit more freedom of speech. Businesses are able to operate. So if you want to keep this going, yeah. the best way you can prove to the world that you mean what you say is to tear down this wall. Yeah, and I think that he has a line where he says something like, you know, is this just window dressing? Mm-hmm. This this glasnost, this perestroika, or is it do you really seek liberalization and change and prosperity? And so he leaves it open. He doesn't say I completely Accept what Gorbachev is saying. I challenge you to live up to what you're saying, Mr. Gorbachev. So it's an interesting application here, as you were saying before, Greg, of this moral principle of freedom as in a contrast to tyranny, but prudently applied. Right. Tell us a little bit more about that, that prudential application, because some people just reading the 1964 speech might say Reagan was just a hardliner. And he was a hardliner all the time. This is what everyone did say, right? I mean, and, and this is, uh, I mean, Reagan's not Goldwater, but wasn't that the, the Daisy Flower commercial, right? That these guys are nuts, that they're going to lead us into World War III. I, I don't know how he did it. I mean, I, it's a, it really is something that I, it's difficult for me to fathom how someone can be so successful combining these elements that seem so disparate to me or seem in tension or even flat contradiction with one another. How can you remain so clearly devoted to principle and yet still be pragmatic and bend. I mean, it's it's a, it's a quality that we don't often see in politicians. I mean, it, either you're flexible and you're you compromise, or you're principled and, and therefore you're inflexible and can't compromise. So how do you balance that? I mean, the people I think of who did it very well. I mean, I, you know, Lincoln comes to mind. Churchill comes to mind, right? People who are able to say, "I'm deeply committed." You know, in Lincoln's case, uh, op- opposed to slavery, but 
there are certain ways that one has to go about doing it and one has to, I mean, Reagan still had to get elected, for example, right? Like, um, and he yeah. was deeply popular once he was finally elected. But there's, it's, it's a real skill. One might say, say it's almost uh, what the best politicians are capable of, maybe even statesmen-like, to be able to combine a devotion to principle with a prudential calculation of how best to achieve. What's the old famous Lincoln line about, I can get you from point A to point B, but you know, uh, if there's a swamp in the way, you've got to go. Yeah. That's, you got to figure it. out how to get through the swamp, yeah, right? You, you can't just know the what swamp. the North Star is. Right, exactly. So Reagan knows the North Star is the defeat of Soviet communism. Right. Yeah. And, and in that respect, he's radical. And he changes tactics, though, like you said. Like at one point, it's buildup. It's armament buildup. At another point, fine, we'll scale back, right? Um, what does it mean in East, Western Europe? What does it mean in other parts of the world? Um, what does it mean in South Africa? Even how is that related to the war on communism at this point? Yeah. So all of these things are are tactical, prudential. He changes tactics at different points, and maybe that's maybe that's the way that he's doing it. So he says, Our, "My goal is to defeat Soviet communism." Right. In 1982 or 1983, it might mean actually putting missiles in Europe. That's right. Which I think he did, and against enormous political yeah. opposition. But then in 1986, 87, as you're saying, John, maybe it means actually reducing missiles, mm -hmm. right. and even talking about giving up the strategic defense initiative, the defensive uh, yeah. program against missiles, the defeat of Soviet communism is the goal. How we're going to achieve it will have to differ depending on the circumstances we're in, including the circumstance of a different Russian leader. Mm -hmm. The aftermath of this address. Can I just add one oh, small point yeah, there? Please. Just a small point. One thing that will enable the United States of America better to wage this Cold War it's just to bring it back to his domestic policy, is un re-unleashing freedom domestically. That's going to help spearhead a lot, because America's growing economy, America will become a yeah. model again. The moral clarity will ring out in the world, and people will see that we're superior. Like in, in They'll see that freedom produces prosperity. Exactly. Freedom produces flourishing right. and happiness. Right. And then that will reinforce the form. I mean, it all works together here. It's really quite impressive. And it did. I mean, I, I think that I mean, it's, maybe it's just looking back with something like nostalgia, but it seems so clear to me that the, that the West was morally superior to the communist world. It just seems unequivocally undeniable. To well, me. nobody was trying to escape from West Berlin into East Berlin. <laughs> right? I mean, like I, I, as, a kid, as a kid, as an eight-year-old kid, when I, when I first went and saw the wall, and I could see like, where they had marked where people had tried to flee from East Berlin to West Berlin and gotten shot. Like, to me, it was like, there's, who in, what kind of a serious human being would think that's a good place. If people are, you have to shoot them to keep them there. It just yeah. and a point that Reagan makes is look at East Berlin versus West oh, yeah. Berlin. It's the the two are like night and day. And no just, wonder people want to leave East Berlin. Right. One is one is flourishing, and one it looks drab, impoverished, it's, and just dead. And the funny thing is. East Germany was like the showplace of communism. Yeah. The, the Soviets put massive money <laughs> into, making, right. into, into making into making. So if East best. Berlin oh, doesn't look good, yeah, that's right. That, yeah, that, yeah, imagine what Zagreb. <laughs> well, okay, it's Yugoslavia, so we'll put that in a different category. But, this but day, Warsaw. I, mean, I think that one of the problems that I see is that um, among the conservative movement is a sort of there's a kind of nostalgia for how great Reagan was, but I don't know how much we sort of think, or at least I hear a lot of people say how his ideas are outmoded, and I, I'm just. I'm not persuaded by that. If the principles are good, maybe the tactics have to be different. But, you know, East Berlin, West Berlin, look at a map from the sky, a satellite picture of North Korea and South Korea. Like, it's obvious. I mean, look what's happening with the Uyghurs in communist China, right? Like, it, the principles are clear to me that these types of regimes are, are tyrannical and evil and probably should be approached with the kind of fortitude and clarity of moral superiority that Reagan approached the Soviets. And so I, I just, I look back to this, the time for choosing speech, and he's got a He's got a paragraph that I think is just as relevant today with our approach to similar kinds of regimes as was, was the case in 1964. He says, there's risk in, in following this course, but every lesson in history tells us that the greater risk lies in appeasement. Should we really have something like detente uh, with a regime that's doing what's happening in North Korea or in China? I'm not sure. Should we continue accommodate, to accommodate, as he says? He says, if we do all this, we'll just be in a weaker position from which... Uh, to engage them, but will also be weaker spiritually, morally, and economically. Therein that lies the road to war. People forget that actually Reagan consistently is saying that this tough guy posture, the goal is peace. And mm, it's and right, counterintuitively, right. the accommodators, the pacifiers, the appeasers, that's the road to war, in fact. So, yeah. I don't know. Because a clear understanding of the opponent as an expansionist, aggressive uh, uh, ideology and power that if you give ground, they will take it. Absolutely. The, the, the aftermath of this yeah. speech, the Brandenburg Gate. You know, 
given how large it looms now in any you know any history of the 1980s is going to look at this any any consideration yeah. of the Reagan and, and we're saying it's important for our listeners sure. to understand the American idea to know this speech yeah. but it really didn't have much of an impact at the time of course it was it was well received by the those who listened to the speech who were physically there uh, the Soviets and East German governments, you know, released things like this Cold War propaganda and, and, <laughs> and, and, and dismissed it. But it didn't get it, it didn't get much play in the U.S. media until two October years later, October nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, and then all of a sudden it seems prescient. Wow, right. So, so uh, the, the the fame of that speech is really a post uh, nineteen eighty nine phenomenon. Hmm. Who would have thought? When he gave that speech in June of 1987, that just over two years later, the wall would be gone. Amazing. And the reunification of Germany yeah. begins. Right. Yeah. Is, does that speech, uh, your opinions, does that speech mark the beginning of the end of the Cold War? The beginning of the American triumph in the Cold War? Or is that not the right way to look at it? I don't. The speech doesn't make it happen, um, but it's a signal that Reagan clearly believes it's on it. it right. It's it's on its way out. Hmm. Right. So it's 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 yet another signal that he sees things as heading in that very much in that direction. Right. I don't know if Reagan himself imagined it happening as quickly as two years later, but I think he saw it happening within his lifetime. I think that's right. I'll I'll say also I think. I mean, the beginning of the defeat was, I think, I, I mean, what does Reagan think about himself? And this is six years into his presidency. So I think the beginning, I think, if would be the beginning of this, the change in, in strategy and tactics with how to deal with the Soviet Union. So, and he's, I think he's, I think in, by 1987, it's the beginning where he's starting to see some of the fruits of the work that he's been putting in for the last half dozen I years. I see, right, right. So it's, it doesn't start that work. That, start, that work started before he became president and then was actually put into place when he became right. president, both on the domestic side, as you said, Greg, yeah. but also in foreign policy. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, fascinating. We really, really have here an articulation by, if you're right, Greg, one of the most important public figures and maybe even statesmen of the 20th century right. attached to this principle of the American idea as a principle of freedom, of self-government that should be true in America and should be a principle by which we judge our laws and reform things, but also the that ought to guide American foreign policy prudentially applied. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. Thank you very much, both of you, for this really interesting conversation into an insight into the mind of, of someone who at the time I think a lot of commentators didn't think very highly of yeah. his mind and his thinking. Thank you very much both for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. Subscribe for more at ashbrook.org slash AmericanIdeaPod and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AmIdeaPodcast. From the Schramm Library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sickenberg.